On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses The Wall live performances. Welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter as we return to Pink Floyd's The Wall covering the live performances. gentlemen well done joe oh Good start thank Good you start. Uh, those <laughs> those uh those four beers make all the difference i think so we've got ground rules we're not doing every wall live performance we are only discussing three distinct phases correct we are discussing three distinct phases i thought it would be interesting to go back in and look at this and, and you guys as you often do were kind enough to humor me so when when we were doing preparing for the wall episode which turned into the three-part marathon you know the the different facets of the wall as both a, or as an album a live performance and a movie seemed fully integrated and so it seemed appropriate to me to go back in and review those now again being the age that we are obviously we were you know aware and cognizant in 1990 when roger waters staged the wall in berlin and we will certainly talk about that and i thought that was interesting and then most recently you know as roger has sort of seen this touring renaissance if i'm able to say that as as recently as 2010 he performed the wall in its entirety and i th i thought that was sort of a nice bookend to you know this this 30 years of, of performance of The Wall, and it seems appropriate to then cover those three very distinct and very discreet performances of The Wall. So, yes, Ken, that is, those are the ground rules for this evening. Are prepared, prepared for battle. If we want to maintain sort of regular format, we can, I, I can go through maybe some parts of the wiki for these three particular uh, tours or albums, as the case may be, and sort of lend us, you know, some of the quote-unquote official context, if you will. So the the Wall, the um, the Wall tour was a concert tour by the English progressive rock band Pink Floyd throughout 1980-1981 in support of their concept album, The Wall. The tour was relatively small compared to previous tours for a major release, with only 31 shows in total. The tour was notable for its extensive use of stage theatrics, most notably a giant wall constructed across the stage to convey the sense of alienation present in both the album and Roger Waters' personal feelings at the time. So the, the tour personnel were uh, officially in the band at that point, as we've discussed, were David Gilmour, Nick Mason, and Roger Waters, with Richard Wright rounding out the primary band. Then we also had the surrogate band which consisted of andy brown on bass guitar snowy yep. white and andy roberts on guitar 
Um, Snowy White was in 1980, and Andy Roberts was in 1981. Willie Wilson on drums. Clive Brooks is credited as playing drums. He was Nick Mason's drum tech, and he replaced um, Nick on one show. And then Peter Woods, Peter Wood, I'm sorry, was the keyboard um, as as well. And then there was Joe Chimay, Stan Farber, Jim Haas, John Joyce on backing vocals. And then there was also a an MC who opened the show, and there are one, two, three, four, five, six people credited with, with that um, performance. The Wall, live in Berlin, was a live concert performance by Roger Waters and numerous guest artists of the Pink Floyd studio album The Wall, itself largely written by Waters during his time with the band. The show was held in Berlin on 21st July 1990 to commemorate the fall of the Berlin Wall eight months earlier. A live album of the concert was released on 21st August 1990. A video of the concert was also commercially released. Now, there's a huge cast of characters who performed in Berlin in 1990. Starting, starting out, besides Roger, um, starting out the show was the Scorpions, including Klaus Meine, Rudolf Schenker, uh, Matthias Jabs, Francis uh, Buckholtz, and Hermann Rarebelt, Ute Lemper, Cindy Lauper, Thomas Dolby, who deserves mad freaking props for that performance, Sinead O'Connor, the band, the Hooters, Joni Mitchell, James Galway, Brian Adams, Jerry Hall, Paul Carrick, Van Morrison, Tim Curry, Marianne Faithful, and Albert Finney. Additionally, Roger's core band, the Bleeding Hearts Band, Bleeding Hearts Band, included Philadelphia musician Rick DeFonzo on guitar, as well as Snowy White, Andy Fairweather Lowe on bass guitar, Peter Wood on keyboards, Nick Glennie Smith on keyboards, Graham Broad on drums, Stan Farber, Joe Chimay, Jim Haas, and John Joyce on backing vocals. The 90 performance also included the Round Funk Orchestra, the Round Funk Choir, um, the Marching Band of the Combined Soviet Forces in Germany, and Patty Maloney, who was a member of the Chieftains, listed on the album credits contribution was the tin whistle playing throughout the concert. And the significance of Rund Funk Orchestra would be they were directed by Michael Kamen. That is correct. Very, very important there. And then, finally, The Wall 2010-13. The Wall Live was a worldwide concert tour by Roger Waters, formerly of Pink Floyd. The tour is the first time the Pink Floyd album The Wall has been performed in its entirety by the by the band of or any of its former members since Water performed the album live in Berlin, 1990. Um, there's a whole bunch of other information here that I'm not really going to go into because um, it doesn't really interest me at this point. So the tour band for the 2010 performance, and this gets a little interesting. Roger Waters, obviously on bass, um, acoustic guitar. He's credited with trumpet on Outside the Wall, which is interesting. Graham Broad, again, on drums, percussion, ukulele. John Karen, who has come up in some of our conversations on keyboards, as well as lap steel programming, high-strung guitar on Comfortably Numb, acoustic yeah. guitar on Outside the Wall, electric guitar on Run Like Hell, Bring the Boys Back Home, Comfortably Numb, and Brick Three. Dave Kilminster mm -hmm. on guitars uh, and banjo as well as bass on Mother, Snowy White, 
Harry Waters on Hammond Organ, G.E. Smith, he of Saturday Night Live fame on uh, guitars, bass, and mandolin on Outside the Wall. Oh, my God. I, I didn't realize he was on there. I, I was watching the video today, and I'm like, holy shit, that's G.E. Smith. How um, can you miss him? Well, I, yeah, I just, yeah he, he kind of stands out. Robbie His parts White are carved out for him. They didn't exist prior. Let's put it that way. Robbie Wyckoff, lead vocals. Um, so basically, he's the David Gilmore stand-in. And then uh, John Joyce, Kip Lennon, Mark Lennon, and Pat Lennon, all on backing vocals and percussion. Um, now, this is interesting. With David Gilmore, guest guitarist and singer at Waters' London O2 show on 12 May 2011. That's kind of big. And Nick Mason, guest percussion at Waters' London O2 show, also on 12 May 2011. So I guess there was uh, some, some healing, mending of the fences there. So that's really, really very good. Now, as I mentioned sort of at the top of this episode, you know, I, I knew, I was aware that there were live performances of The Wall in 1980 and 1981. I was aware, um, obviously, of the 1990 performance. I and I was aware, you know, fairly recently of the 2010 performance. What I wasn't necessarily aware of, and, and as I mentioned also, came became clear to me during the research for The Wall was that these things were being developed at the same time. And it seems to be clear that Roger had a greater vision for all of this. And, and we've talked about throughout you know, the Pink Floyd catalog, this, this idea of bringing in the music and the visuals together. And the fact that it's just, it's astounding to me that Roger was able to essentially write a two disc concept album, which is really very strong from top to bottom. We talked about it for three freaking episodes for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. um, given all of the controversy that was happening at the time between being, you know, tax exiles, recording over two separate um, uh, studios, you know, in, in France, as well as kicking a member out of the band, time pressure, all these extra musicians, and then developing a stage show at the same time. It's mind-boggling to me that they were able to pull this off. And if you go into the lore about this stage show, they they pulled in a new light designer two days before the start of this tour. They were mm -hmm. doing their dress rehearsals, and they said, this isn't right. And they called a guy and said, can you fix it? So, you know, that's... And, and we'll talk about the lighting and, and the how it was captured on film, at least film I was able to view. But I mean, that's, that's amazing that, that they would do that. And what's also interesting to me, and, and we'll get into this, especially when you talk about these three separate performances. So if you think about it, the walk, the album came out, then they did the stage show, then the movie came out. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, a big part of the movie is the the Jerry Scarf animations. And there are some aspects of that that are in the wall performance, namely in the form of the inflatables and some projected portions behind the screen. But at, at the 
those are somewhat limited, I think, when you look, at least in, in terms of the, the visuals that I was able to see on, on the 1980 tour, and no one had seen the movie yet, so maybe the impact of some of those visuals could have potentially been lost on them. Obviously, after 1981 or 2 or 3, whenever it was that the movie came out, and we'll figure that out next episode, when you see the performances in 1990 and 2010, the Jerry Scarf images now become a little bit more integrated. And certainly from 2010, I think they were fully integrated, and it was, it was quite stunning in that regard. But I wonder what the audiences in 1980 and 1981 were thinking when they saw some of this stuff, because it was it was probably a little jarring, and and quite frankly, um, and, and this you know I I don't mean to throw stones because it was a huge mammoth undertaking what they were trying to do, but I wonder if there wasn't some level of of confusion because when you look at the 1980 performances in the lens of the 21st century, they seem absolutely sophomoric. And, and that's not to take anything away because there was nothing else like it at the time, at least as far as I can tell. And it was, it was you know, it's difficult to create something that doesn't exist. But the integrated visual aspect of it, I think, is largely unfulfilled in 1980. That's my perspective. Um, oh. You know, you guys can, can give your perspective. And one oh. last point that I would like to make before I sort of turn I'm this sorry loose. that you're speaking of the music and the the final sum of the parts well or, yeah or, I think I think and, and my perspective is musically the 1980 shows are phenomenal I think they are, are are very very vibrant I think having the extra band members really lends a lot of energy to them and gives the band some flexibility and, and yep. I, th I think there's some some definite energy there, but I think the visuals don't match that. is is my perspective. Huh. So the the other visual point that I would like to make, sort of generally off the bat, and, and again, Paul, I think you would point this out on our our text um, stream. In the U.S., it's very difficult, at least on YouTube, to find a an intact copy of of the wall to watch from 1980. Taking that as a cue, I turned on my oh. VPN and, and you know, hijacked my computer to the Netherlands to see if I could find something else. I actually did find, you know, it was a 30 minute clip that had four or five songs that at least allowed me to get the flavor for what was going on during the are show. You, Joe, are you talking about the 1990 show or the no, 80 show? the 80 show. Okay, there is actually a full, version of the 80s show on youtube now well it's you can, it's terrible it's terrible it's terrible mm -hmm. yeah i was yeah. looking for something a little bit better but okay. what i was surprised to see and, and it may have actually been from that full thing well specifically the youtube quality is really bad we don't know what it came from or how long it's sat around or what the deal was but it, it's just not a good youtube experience but the no, music could have been Music could have been great. Yeah. Like, well, and, and, and I have a generation dub of a VHS tape played on the last remaining VHS player <laughs> of all time. Yes. I, I actually have I have the CD version of all three of these performances. Wow. So so I have access to the the audio portion, you know, in in CD quality, which is is much better. But but what I the the last thing 
the general point that I wanted to make, and I, I wasn't aware of this. Growing up when we grew up, and we already talked about the, the schism and the, the David versus Roger and, and, and everything else and the Pink Floyd tours of, of um, 87 and, and 94 and, and, and all of that, I didn't realize that the large circular screen surrounded by lights originated from this era of Pink Floyd. I thought it was sort of a, a David Gilmour era construct. I did not realize that he was in fact, you know, stealing that or carrying it over from the heady days of, of Roger Pink Floyd. <laughs> Joe, Joe realizes that nothing original at all came from the Gilmour era. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was just, I was, I was struck by that because, you know, the one thing that you can see in that YouTube video from 1980 is the huge circular screen over the right. stage. And you're like, oh, that's where that came from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so those are sort of my, my overarching thoughts you know, thoughts on a lot of this and, and we can, you know, go into to various things. And, and obviously I don't think we need to go into great detail in, in all of these, but maybe touch, you know, some of the highlights or in the case of 1990, the lowlights, uh, you know, for, for some of that. So, yeah. Well, that's a pretty strong preview, but, <laughs> I, but I would agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the one thing I have to say, I kind of laugh when you're going through the the particulars, Joe, because you mentioned the the, the four different MCs that are credited, and on the wikis, um, you know, they were in different areas, and there's only one of the MCs in the credits that has a link in Wikipedia, which means there's another page on them. Yeah, and it's and it's for Jim Ladd, so I highlight the link to see who Jim Ladd is. And it's that douchebag with the glasses from the one YouTube no! video. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> I refuse to watch. <laughs> 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 oh, that is hilarious. Oh, I feel terrible for saying that. So yeah, you should. <laughs> <laughs> He's an American disc jockey, according to the web. Oh, he is. apparently a God. he was a big deal. Back in the in the late seventies, early eighties, and he knew about it too. He he knew he was a big deal. Apparently, the so there was a shop. I believe it was in Ocean City, Maryland, because that's where I spent most of my time around nineteen eighty in the summer. Not most of my time, but when I would go to the beach, that's where I would go. It was like it was like the one cool shop along the boardwalk. It was like a surf shop and it had all kinds of t-shirts that you could get. And there were posters, posters galore. And there were postcards that you could buy. And they had all sort of rock and roll paraphernalia. And on one of my trips to Ocean City, Maryland, I procured a Pink Floyd The Wall tour program. Nice. And wow. I took that with me to college. And, you know, on on every weekend when I would listen to The Wall in its entirety at one point in time in my in my dorm room, I would sit there and flip through the booklet of the Wall program. It it actually slays me that I don't have it now. I have no idea when I let go of it and when I you know when I got rid of it. But I don't I don't have it anymore. But I 
I was like so, I, I just was so desperate about not having a chance to go see the wall show. And I used to just imagine, Oh my gosh, what must have that been like to be at the actual wall performance in, in, in the tour. And it had built <laughs> up into something so like monumental and so incredible that watching it on this like grainy, shitty YouTube video was <laughs> difficult because it just, the, you know, almost the whole first half, I'm like, this fucking sucks. <laughs> like, like, there's nothing going on here. There, there really is nothing. It's, it's stunning. And like I said, you know, I, I, I'm with you, Paul. You know, we had, we had always heard about this thing and it was, you know, there was just a handful of shows and it must have been magical. And, and if you read um, some of the accounts, like, I guess the, the way that that was originally staged Obviously, in the second half of the show, the band was behind the wall, and I guess they would collapse the wall backwards. And so, and maybe it was on one of the um, one of the documentaries that I watched. At which I, juncture? At, at at the end. At the end, right? And and so I believe it's on one of the the documentaries about that tour where one of the one of the musicians from the the surrogate band describes having they had to play in a cage a protective cage while this wall was falling on top of them. Nice, <laughs> nice. And, and I mean that's that's really something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I as I watch this. Um, it was so frustrating to try to watch it on my phone um, in such low quality. I was listening to it through my stereo, so at least it sounded okay. Um, but I, I have to say, as much as I was turned off at the beginning and frustrated, I actually came pretty much full circle, particularly through the second half of, of the show. Um, I... <laughs> I mean, first of all, David Gilmore is laughing during Hey You in the video on YouTube. I think it was at, I think that video was shot that I watched was at Nassau Coliseum. He literally is, is like guffawing in, at the, at the one part of the, um, of the show, uh, while he's singing. I just thought, I thought that was funny. But, but from the time, you know, it was frustrating because I, I don't know what it must have been like to see the wall being built. Like in the 2010 show, you can you can kind of see it happening before your eyes, but on the video, like only when someone would take a flash picture, you'd be like, "Holy shit, the wall's being built all this time! I didn't even see it." Um, but yeah. once the, once the wall was built, and they did the second half of the show, I I was kind of blown away how you know how they did use the wall to project the animation. I thought the same as you, Joe before the movie what it must have been like to during waiting for the worms to see all of those hammers walking through you know right. walking along the thing like that must have just been and it, and and I, I it was only a couple of years later that i started going to see concerts and i and i i you, you never saw shit like that in a concert i mean that was it, it had to have been just as epic as we thought it was. And, um, and there was just something to me that was so genuine about the performance 
about the way they presented the show. It was rough around the edges. They didn't, I, I loved, I just kind of marveled and loved at the fact that Gilmore didn't play every riff the way you thought, you know, it should yeah. be played. Like, oh my God, he didn't play the, the last part of that riff in Young Lust. But he just, he played it like a rock star and he played it like, this is my oh, yeah. fucking song. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And there was something so genuine about the whole performance to me that actually, out of all three of them, it's my favorite. Well, to what extent did they have the puppets, the Richard Scarf puppets? So they, the pu they, had, yeah. they had the teacher, they had mother, and they had the wife. That works. And and, and they had the pig flying around too, but oh, and the pig, I, I right. never saw it. Yeah, yeah, the the pig you couldn't even tell what it was, and yeah. and Roger makes such a big deal about that on the video. You're like, what the fuck, dude? I can't even see it. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah. you know it, that's that's the funny thing about it. You know when when you hear about them bringing in the you know a new lighting director on on the end of it, and and we had this conversation uh, maybe in one of the pre-shows when we're talking i think about live at pompeii right because when you watch the 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 quote unquote movie of live at pompeii 75% of it seems to have been recorded at soundcheck during the day and there <laughs> there's very little from the actual night um, performance and and I'm thinking and, and maybe it was the state of technology at the time that they there just wasn't the film technology to be able to capture these contrast differences and it's a shame um, yeah. because all the stuff you miss but like one of the things that got me at another brick in the wall part two in 1980 when the when the teacher comes out he's got those those spotlights in his eyes and it, it just washes everything else out. Yeah, and it's very yeah. difficult to, to kind of see what it was. But at the same time, I'm sure it was very stunning. If you were in the room, you're like, holy shit, what the fuck is that? You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and fast forward to to 1990. And again, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll jump all over the place. But during the trial, freaking Thomas Dolby became the freaking animated inflatable puppet himself on a crane with the big long floppy arms. I mean, I as much as I think for the most part the 1990 show is an abomination. I fucking love Thomas Dolby as the teacher in that performance. It just ah. it rattles my brain. Nice. Nice. But hmm. but you know, back to 1980, you know, I I had never seen this obviously and I was I was on one of my trips to Nashville at that secondhand you know store where I buy all these great CDs and I picked up um, I believe it's called is anybody out there which is the the mm. official recording of, of the 1980-81 tour yes there it is and, and I put it in and and at the time I didn't even know there was the surrogate band the first thing that tipped me off I was listening to it and I'm like wait a second there are two guitars how the fuck is that happening and so yeah. I pulled out the booklet and I'm like oh they've got two full bands this is awesome but what, it is awesome. But but yeah. what really struck me again, and I already said it, was there is an energy in that performance. As oh yeah. You, you hear you hear the story about recording the wall, and you think it's this 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 you know beat down, this massive drag, this albatross around their neck. But this is to me the recording from 1980 sounds like a band that is absolutely loving performing these songs. Yeah. Thank you. That is my gusto for this show. The 
entire 1980-1981, is there anybody out there recording, is really brilliant. I think it, it captures the intention of the songs. I can actually hear the lyrics better than the produced album in many places and enjoy them a bit more. Uh, the inflection of the voices, I enjoy a bit more. Um, I can't believe the extent to which Roger Waters is on his game in terms of vocal mm-hmm. performance and personality, yeah. having fun with the crowd, um, engagement. And and Gilmore, I don't know why, Joe, you ever question the throaty Gilmore voice. You seem to think that's <laughs> that you, you think that's the less sincere part of his repertoire and that the lullaby voice is more his innate. But I... I I find them equally stunning. And, and, and he's absolutely wonderful with his throat voice on Is There Anybody Out There? And the quality of the four male backing vocalists is, mm. is remarkable. So th- th- this clearly is before, you know, they, they well, I mean, it, it's tough to say. Did, did they support Great Gig in the Sky with a female backing vocalist on any tours did we ever determine that with a male um, backing vocalist you mean uh, well I I, I I i it was just very stunning to me that they didn't have any female backing vocalists yeah. on the 1980 yeah. 1981 tour well if you if you look at at roger's band since then apparently he doesn't prefer them apparently apparently it doesn't seem to be necessary for the wall yeah Bingo. Yeah, it's just, I mean, and, and, but that's how they recorded it, you know? It's yeah. just, yeah. yeah. So, so it's true. It's true to the, I, I respect that. But I just, I, I, I love this. This is my definitive, the wall. I think it, 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 it has replaced for me the album. It, it, it just really conveys the intention of each song. Nice. And, and I think without the visuals, it's it's like the visuals and and the the quality of them almost becomes distracting. So when you when you talk about the the audio CD only, it it does become that. I agree a hundred percent. Great, yeah, that's awesome. I had a couple, just a couple of notes that that um just to throw out with this because there there is I'm, I'm with you one hundred percent, Ken. And I think that's watching this. I just I, to me it felt so genuine. It was so cool to see. Uh, the the band loving this and and their presentation of it. a couple things that I just wrote that I thought were, you know, funny. Um, in the scenes where Roger is watching TV, uh, the the clips, the announcers on the on the YouTube, they're 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 talking about hockey, which I thought was just fucking great because it was the show I was watching was at the Nassau Coliseum. <laughs> um, I wrote down fans with horns. Um, I don't know if it comes through on the audio compilation, but on the YouTube video, there were several times where, you know, those like those horns you used to take to like football games and like, oh, yeah, you know? oh, no, like there were people had that had those and like during certain parts they would. And I just thought there was some irony there based on the whole inspiration behind this. There was an extra verse they put in the in the show must go on. It was terrible. It's a good thing they took it out of the regular album. I thought. <laughs> uh, what about what about the expanded empty spaces? Yes, the that's uh, good. We do part. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I always feel like that song. There's some parts of that song that 
that hit and miss with me, but I do, it really works well in the live, in the live setting for sure. I thought, I thought the Brian Adams part, uh, you know, in 2010 was pretty awesome yeah. too. And then, and then the, la the last thing that I wrote was in waiting for the worms, they had that giant flaming gong with the, with the two hammer, the, the hammers on them that right. kept banging. That was fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> So, so some of the notes that I have, and, and you know, the things that I fixate on are, are always very, I, I find them funny. So in Run Like Hell, now this is, this is the only recorded version that we have, at least that I'm aware of, where you're able to recreate Run Like Hell with the David and Roger call and answer. Hmm. Every performance of, of Run Like Hell, whether it's Roger or David, obviously has to, you know, you know, substitute something in for the other. And, and while there are a couple of, of points in the, in the video that I watched where Roger gets a little screechy, I find vocally this, the two of them together to be absolutely magical. I, I loved it hundred percent. I also love the video that I watched has David playing this on his old tattered telly, which just yeah. gives me the warm fuzzies. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I absolutely, absolutely loved it. And and Run Like Hell definitely de benefits here from having the second guitar because it allows David to, you know, focus on some things while Snowy's doing some some other stuff. Um, another, brick in the, another brick in the wall, the teacher puppet comes out. Again, very, very striking. But here again, David Gilmore's playing a fucking Gibson. What? Yes. <laughs> You never ever see that. It, it looks honestly weird to me. <laughs> I'm just like, wait, that's that's not the way life's supposed to be at all. Um, you know, and, and again, I just that that's really funny. Um, in Mother, when the inflatable mother comes out during the guitar solo, I personally found it to be very distracting mm. for for me. And and again, I think. I appreciate what they were trying to do with the inflatables in 1980. I just, I don't know that it landed quite in the way that they wanted to, especially when you look at the later versions. Um, comfortably numb. And, and it's funny because this repeats itself, certainly in 2010. I don't remember if it does in, in uh, 1990 or not, but Roger Waters in a lab coat singing to a wall it's just a little weird. <laughs> I, 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 there's no other way around that um, for me. Yeah, that you're 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 so right about that because that's it's very, uh, it it's very congruent with the with the storyline. And he always said that that's what that song is about. It's about the conversation between the doctor and yeah. And, 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 but, and I, I get right. it. It's it's goofy. The, it's just, you know, and it, he's got a little notepad. Yeah. Thing. So, so in, in, in the context of the story, right, Pink has now sequestered himself behind the wall. And so the doctor obviously has to be outside the wall speaking to Pink beyond the wall. I get it. But from a visual concert experience, it's just weird. And did you guys see or pick up or notice in 2010 when he actually has a huge needle that he sticks into the wall? Oh, that's corny. I, <laughs> I mean, the things it, it it's got to be like four or five 
feet long. <laughs> oh my god! And he physically sticks it into the wall and depresses the plug. Oh my god! <laughs> and it's just like, oh god, really? But yeah, that that whole the whole concept of that staging is 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 to me very very high schoolish. Yeah, but. And, and I had read about this in the wikis when we were preparing for the, the Wall album episode. And it's it's a cheap gag. But when, when Roger in the lab coat singing to the Wall is juxtaposed by David on top of the Wall? Yeah. Fuck me. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> it's like... And, and, and I almost have to wonder, right? And, and in in the in the context of hindsight, given you know whatever went on and everything else, was there some part of Roger that begrudged David his rock god moment of being up on this wall in the spotlight, you know, singing and playing these wonderful solos? It it was it was as striking in the good way as Roger in the lab coat at the foot of the wall was odd and disconcerting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to say he didn't because, you know, I mean, by all accounts, know, 30, 30 years later, he decided to do the same, the <laughs> same getup and, with and, a giant hypodermic needle. And, so. and, and at that time he has like in 1990. And again, I don't remember what Roger was doing. He may have had the lab coat. I don't know. He did. He oh did. yeah, he, he did. And that's mind. right. And, and I'm sorry. It was 1990 where he had the big hypodermic needle because they had that road in front and there was like the ambulance oh. in front of the wall. That's what I remember from ninety, yeah. the ambulance driver. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. It, and and maybe it, I didn't. I don't think I got all the way through nineteen nineties or two thousand ten. So now I'm all confused. But in nineteen ninety, uh, apologies to everyone who's been freaking out for the last ten minutes. You fucking idiot. Yeah. Okay. Great. I figured it out. In nineteen ninety, when he had the big hypodermic needle, not only did Rick Defonso get on top of the wall, but Snowy White was also on top of the wall. So yeah. both those guys got to solo from up there. And it was, you know, again, it's it's kind of a cheap gimmick, but it works. As 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 much as Roger singing to the wall at the bottom maybe doesn't, the the guitarists on top of the wall totally do. But yeah. that was, in, in 1990, that was offset again. The singer who was playing David Gilmore's parts didn't get to be on the wall. He's nowhere to be seen. He's behind the wall. And that's <laughs> a little weird. Wait, in 1990? Yeah. That was, and, yeah. It was Van Morrison, wasn't it? Yes. But oh, Van Morrison we have to was, have this. Oh. Van a, Morrison was behind the wall. Choice. There was like, <sighs> there's no indication of where Van Morrison is. And it's very funny. If you look at the video, there's like all this smoke and stuff going by Van Morrison and the band. And you can't see them. Maybe they were projected uh, on screens. I, I believe... That in 1980, Roger was Roger did want to begrudge David Gilmore for all his nonsense, and he was like, "Okay, I'm going to take like the two best parts that David Gilmore sings in the Wall, and I'm going to fuck them up beyond all recognition <laughs> by having Van Morrison sing his part <laughs> and comfortably numb, and have those and me and those two other fucking jokers sing the part in Mother." Oh, that um, was terrible. I mean, it just, yeah, it it it, it was almost like sabotage. Uh, I don't know. All right. Well, talking about sabotage, 
How did Van Morrison get the gig? I mean, I love Van Morrison. Come on. He's, he's, he's got a personality unto himself, and he's legendary. But just does not fit whatsoever I here. I know. For that song? Well, and, oh and isn't... So, and now that we've sort of moved sort of somewhat naturally into 1990, I, I mean, obviously we remember this. This was the time of these big, massive productions, right? You had the, the Live Aids and the Farm Aids and, and the fall of the Berlin Wall, and there was this whole big thing. And, and, and this was like broadcast everywhere. And then I, I went out and I bought it right away, even though I didn't like it at that point. All of these guest stars on the first half of this album is really the problem with the album. When it settles into the second half of the album and it's basically just the Bleeding Hearts band and Roger doing the singing as he should be, I think the second half of this show is much more palatable. But the first half is atrociously bad. Um, with one exception. There's one There's there's one point um, in in during the trial that absolutely just makes my skin crawl but other than that i think the second half is pretty good but when you talk about sinead o'connor and the band on mother why um you know van morrison no oh. um joni mitchell is okay oh, i think no, but not, oh. but it's it's just it's it's wrong it's not it doesn't feel right and brian adams comes close but it's, you know, and, and Brian Adams is a rocker. You know, it makes kind of sense, but I don't know. I mean, the and Paul, you had mentioned this. I think the only guest star that really, really lands it are the Scorpions. Yeah. The fucking <laughs> Scorpion, man. The fucking Scorpion. In, they they in pull Berlin. up in a white limo and, and, and start the show. Come I mean, on. how badass is that? You got all these motorcycles and this huge stretch limo drives right onto the stage. They get out. Klaus Mina looks cool in his little hat. He looks like, you know, 30 years younger than he normally does. The only and, – and, and they they slay it on um, in the flesh, question yeah. mark. But the funny thing is when you watch that, I mean, if you listen to it, it's great. And, and Klaus is just fucking cool as all get out. But if yeah. you look at the band, they're all amped up and they don't know what to do playing this – kind of slow dirgy song it's yeah it's really kind of funny mm -hmm. but but they do it great it it's it's true i think that i really enjoyed this go around brian adams performance of the, of the two songs that he did but i think his his performance may be somewhat elevated uh by all, all the other stuff that's going around here that's not really that great Oh, I yeah, and and I forgot Cindy Lauper on another brick in the wall part two. Oh my god! It's just was... like why? And then as as if it's not bad enough, you know. Say what you want to about Cindy Lauper, and and you know, I wonder if if Cindy Lauper doesn't explain the Hooters being there because they were they were very tight at that point, right? Um, but. Say what you want to about Cindy Lauper, and she has certainly a place in in pop music and and everything else. I never was one to see Cindy Lauper as some sort of a sex symbol. So to see her strutting around and and trying to sex it up, it was just uncomfortable for me. And and the only thing that really saved that whole performance 
was Thomas Dolby and his freaking guitar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, what he played was kind of stupid and pointless, but I just see him come out in the getup of the teacher. And yeah. who doesn't love a good guitar solo? I mean, you know, it, it's again, it's a gimmick, but it's it's one of the gimmicks that that kind of worked for me. Now, when you talk about Brian Adams and and playing Young Lust, I thought it was really really interesting because at that point, most of the wall is closed, right? And and there's there's like this little gateway that Brian comes out and Brian spends most of of Young Lust in front of the wall by himself, which is a little it it's, it seems very disconnected, but at, yeah. by the end of that, Rick and Snowy are in this portal. So you get all three of the of the guitar guys kind of playing around there, and it just it yeah. it struck me as as odd. Like you know, you've got this, <laughs> this this wall that's built, and you've got this little open hole that Brian has walked out of, and now you got the other two guitars just sitting there. And then Brian goes back and 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 yeah, and, and mixes with them. And it just it's the staging again was it was a little odd. The Berlin show is like a caricature of of the wall it just it 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 is what it is the whole thing was a freaking gimmick um and and really i i I dare i say and there's probably a lot of people who would disagree it was a stunt by roger waters to to uh help a uh you know a solo career that was going nowhere basically but uh, i you know (laughs) <laughs> we have documented here on the palaver my feelings about Roger Waters. And so yeah. it may surprise you for me to play devil's advocate here. Um, there, And I don't know if you guys have seen it. There's actually a documentary on this particular performance. And, you know, again, be very careful about what you hear from people in documentaries, especially from Roger Waters, who has a history of retconning things. However, um, it there is... There does seem to be an obvious sort of part of this that when you have Roger obviously is concerned with certain social issues. When you have in 1989 and 1990 the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was a you know a huge part certainly of someone Roger's age, and you know the the relation with Eastern Europe and and Russian oppression and all of that business. When you have such a, a concrete symbol of of oppression coming down in the form of a physical wall, it really does kind of become just painfully obvious that this is a an appropriate time and place to stage this performance of the wall. And and Roger explains it himself here that you know he was the the conditions were such that he was able to sort of expand in some regards the symbolism that was originally created in the music the wall to encompass this larger social issue so i'm i'm going to give him a pass to some regard on this because he didn't he he on it to he didn't go back to the pink floyd well for a number of years at least you know 10 after this so you know yeah okay he did the wall again right well, he did the wall in 2010. I don't know when he started doing oh. Pink Floyd, um, like Pink Floyd centric tours. Oh, right, right, right. Because this is 90, right? You're right. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, you know, it, 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 the, 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 Fair enough. the concern that I have is, is you know, he, he tried to make it too much of a spectacle. And, and like I said, I think the first half suffers for that. Now, in that, in that documentary, though, there is a very – it, it provides a lot of very powerful context. So Potsdamer Plots, where they staged this, was actually the no man's land between the two sides, which, you know, that's – essentially no one had been on that ground in, what, 50 years or whatever it was at that point? probably 40 years, 30 years, to the point where the one of the producers, and I forget what, what role he played, he, he mentioned that he had a concern that the this area may have been mined. They actually had sure. the army come in and mine sweep where this, this performance wow. occurred because they were afraid of mines. And then, as if that's not good enough for you, they... You know, they sold like 250,000 tickets or something, and 250,000 people show up. And then like another 100 and plus change thousand show up. And, huh. and, and as it comes across in the documentary, you know, they had to make a decision at the time. What do we do? And what they did was they took down the fences so people wouldn't be crushed against them. And huh. so you had this wow. massive crowd of people there. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, sad to the people who paid 250, you know, the 250,000 who paid to get in and kudos to the 150 who didn't, but you know, they probably were further back or whatever. Uh, but it's, it's, it's just fascinating. And then the last, the, 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 yeah, they, they just heard the final note, the, the distance between states right. and, yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> the last little bit that's interesting, the wall was coming down so fast that the, the, the production team had to sort of protect a portion of the wall behind the stage so they could have a secured backstage area. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but you know, it's just, it's, 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 it's obviously, you know, it has some significance when you talk about the fall of the Berlin wall and everything else. And it, it, it obviously was in some ways, a progression, I think, of the live show, but again, huh. for me, visually, I think I think 2010 was visually, and I'm going to emphasize visually. I think 2010 is the perfect manifestation. I think musically, well, it suffers. They won me over with that plane and the fire. I mean, you <laughs> caught that, yeah, that little ditty, right? Yeah. How the fuck did they do that? Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> And and that's out of the gate, right? Are you are you joking about that or are you serious? Because no, I, I liked it. You thought it was cheesy. I I, th I thought it was overdubbed. I thought it was uh, old footage from something else that happened. No, you could tell it was the arena. They just didn't sell seats. Yeah, within within twenty yards of the fire. Okay. Yeah, that that was that was quite a pyrotechnic feat. You know, and it, I it, was it, amazed by watching that show the whole time. I thought it was outdoors. Until that no. when when it showed the credits where it was real real quick. well okay that's we... debatable because they they did three or four shows to put that together so there could yeah. have been one outdoor show amongst the group maybe that's what it was before we leave in 1990 I I, I can't go without talking about Sinead O'Connor that performance of Mother was just among the worst I've ever heard she she 
was fine. She, she's a fine singer. I, I don't, she was so uncomfortable. Whatever, when I watched it, it was the whole thing. It, it was almost like she didn't know what she was doing. Did you read the wiki? There's some kind of power failure going on there. there. Yeah, so then, and then the, in the middle of the song, everything everything turns off. Roger Waters' guitar stops playing. She's looking around. Nobody knows what's going on. It's very bizarre. Very, very bizarre uh, moment. And apparently he encouraged her to mime the words uh, uh, and and she left because she was so frustrated with him apparently yeah, that was very weird yeah uh, you know and, and Sinead O'Connor I, I don't remember what exactly the timeline was I want to say this was probably after Nothing Compares to You which was on her second album I think so she was she was well known you know and again when you yeah. talk about the context here Sinead O'Connor showing up on this um you know Brian Adams you know showing up on this that provides some context uh the 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 Joni Mitchells and the Van Morrisons and the bands those were sort of holdovers I think from you know more from from the older days but but you know and Cindy Lauper right you know and, and Thomas Dolby, all of these, all of these people were sort of relevant at the time, but Sinead O'Connor, I guess, was you know relatively young in terms of her career, and and you know even Roger said she was really really uncomfortable and and yeah. didn't know what to do. So yeah, but yeah. It, it, it's it's a shame because everything about you know, I, and I think I think that performance of Mother both from the, the, the guys singing the Gilmore parts and Sinead herself, it's just, it's, and I, I feel bad saying this, but it's catastrophically bad. Yeah. I could probably sum up my feelings about the 2010 show and I, and I'll like, I'll probably step back a little bit and say this, but I don't know what Roger Waters called that tour for 2010, but I think an appropriate title would have been Uh-oh. Roger Waters, the wall special edition tour. I thought you were going to have something snarky there. You're, now you're disappointing me. That was snarky. <laughs> Why special edition? <laughs> so when George Lucas put out the star Wars special edition, Oh it, no. It was like all of the, it was like the original star Wars with, all the shit that he wanted to do, which basically just made it not as good as the original. <laughs> and that's kind of how. Oh, no. It was like, really? okay, now I'm going to do the tour, the show that we wanted to do back in 1980 that now I can actually do with all the technology. And it left me a little flat. That being said, I had an opportunity to go see that tour. And I want to say it was at the Lincoln Financial Field. And. And, uh, you know, somebody had called me up and, and I, and, and for whatever reason, I was like, nah, I probably just, cause I didn't really want to see Roger Waters and I didn't go. Had I gone to that show and witnessed that spectacle, I, I'm, I'm certain not having any other live wall context, I would have been blown away by the visuals and the presentation of, of that. And, and yeah, I, I'm sure I would have been, but after watching these in, in succession and after really kind of falling for the charm of the 1980 show, this one just kind of left me a little flat. So we're talking oh. 2010, right? 
Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and it's funny. I talked about the 1980 show. My first exposure to that was the, the audio recording, which was spectacular. And of course, the visual leaves you somewhat lacking. I had the exact opposite with the the 2010 tour where I saw it on YouTube first and and I I believe I even mentioned in the text one day you know I for me the visuals are spectacular the way they constructed the wall the way they used the wall um and and by that point you were able to have much more sophisticated images um yeah. you know on on that wall so um, when you, and I'm trying to find it here. One point, oh, it's another, it's the end of the another brick in the wall part two. And I have no idea why a train comes by. Right. Yeah. But, but there's that train that projects onto the front of the wall and it just, it's mind boggling. And, yeah. um, goodbye blue sky. When you get the visuals, the, yeah. the scarf animations with the planes and, and they're seamlessly integrated across the sides of the wall into that, that central circle. It's just it's it's absolutely stunning. I think the the and the inflatable puppets are you know much more advanced at this point, and everything is sort of balanced out in terms of that. And the other thing that really gets me is near the end of Act One, as the wall is closing in, and they end up projecting the wall onto the wall. Yeah. And so you start having the, the bricks that are, are already there and have been there the whole time through visual manipulation start to come away and move and stuff. And it it's yeah. it's it's just mind blowing. And when you talk about staging, the goodbye cruel world in 2010, nothing beats it. Nothing beats it. Mm. But so that's the visual part. When I right. got when I got the CD and I'm like, oh great, now I can listen to this, and I, I put the CD in and I'm just listening to the music without any of the visuals, and it was boring me to tears. Really? It's yes, it's like mother. Oh, I wanted to punch myself in the head. It's just yeah. not very good, um, you know. With with regards to the, you know, when I because I, I watched the 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 video again today at least most of it and mother i can kind of you know get into when i'm watching it but just listening to it and, and there were some other parts of of that it just the and I, i've said this before roger waters as a music director is not my favorite yeah there's parts there are there are parts uh, um I, I remember this with genesis too i remember going to the we can't dance tour and just being blown away by it and then getting the live CDs and just kind of being like, meh. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of songs that are transposed significantly lower for Roger in, in 2010. And when it's, when it's in the heat of the moment, when you have all the visuals going with it, it's not as, it's not as noticeable. It's not as impactful. But I, I, I think that when you just listen to that, it's not, it's not as impactful. It's not as moving musically because everything's been lowered to a key that is, is easy. Right? Yeah. It's, and maybe it wasn't easy for Roger, but he certainly wasn't, didn't have to be, like you said, Ken, on his game the same way he was in 1980 
to to hit all of that stuff and and sing all those. And sometimes the music just suffers because you know the guitarist is like a fifth lower and he's not gonna bend that note to make it sound the way it does because it's just not gonna sound as good a fifth lower, you know, or however however it's detuned. But yeah, and and and, and that that's really um, that that's probably exactly what we're we're dealing with there. And and there's a lot of you know. Roger's performance in 2010 that isn't quite like, you know, when we go back to 1980, and, and this was something that I had, had meant to say, and I, I don't think I did, you know, Roger is absolutely goosed. Like when, when the teacher puppet comes out, he's just, you can see him looking at it and just smiling like, that's badass. You know, mm. and, and and he he really is is into it. Um, in in 2010, you know, obviously he's a, he's an older Roger, and he doesn't quite necessarily have that energy. I do think it's interesting how he decides to open the show with the fascist imagery right off the bat. Um, he really does seem to like the the long trench coat and the sunglasses. And um, the other thing that sort of struck me visually about Roger's performance was um, when he's in the scene when he's in the apartment. I thought that was that was pretty moving, actually, in in 2010 yeah. as well. Yeah, Joe. While you're attacking the music director that is Roger Waters, I'm tempted to quote John Karen from his 2007 interview on the Brain Damage website. And he has asked the question while performing with Roger and David, what are the differences you see in how they both approach playing the Floyd classics? What are the differences in performing with each one of them? So John Karen is the stud who manages to <laughs> act as the glue in both the Gilmore and Waters separate camps. He somehow manages to work both gigs. And he says, if I were to generalize, because all that I can do is generalize, I would say with Roger, the emphasis is on the actual song, the nuts and bolts of the message of the song and the mechanisms of relaying the message to the audience. He tends to break the song down to its molecular level and make sure he's getting the most of it he can and how it relates to the theater of the show as a whole. He wants to know actively what everyone is playing and rely on that exact performance night to night without any alteration. We are treating the Floyd material reverently, almost as one would treat a classical piece, and close to the original as possible, which is very flattering to how perfectly the original records were produced by the band. Now, we, we're not discussing Gilmore tonight, but I'll just give a one-liner. With David, the emphasis is entirely based on the vibe or feeling. And that, so, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so, so given what you know about the way John Karen experiences this, how can you come back and say that as, as a music director, Roger is somehow failing in his duties? Because I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in, in, in the strictest sense, Roger may be quote-unquote right because it's his song and it's his interpretation of it. I just don't respond to it in the way that I respond to Gilmore's sense of feel. I see. Then you, you're, you're just a, 
An emotive dude. Got it. I am an emotive dude. Wow. <laughs> as emo as Prague can get. <laughs> For a failed music director, I'd say there is a really good atmosphere among the players. You know, there's a lot of old people on that stage. It could be an oatmeal commercial. It could be an episode of Hee Haw. It could be Oklahoma the Musical. There's something a little campy about it. But I really like it. Like, while I'm watching, I'm like, yeah, these people, you know, they're really in their element. This is what they've waited their whole lives to do. And they're 100% into it. Yeah. I really like a lot of high fiber uh, dietary items in the rider (laughs) for that that show. (laughs) I I like the high predominance of Telecasters myself, but. Serious. Well, I mean, fiber and Telecasters go hand in hand. (laughs) It is pretty. It is pretty funny though, because I was watching. I'm watching the the thing, and I'm like, I'm like, Jesus Christ! How many guitar players do they need for this? And then, and then I'm like, Is that G. E. Smith in the back? What the fuck is he doing there? Yes, it makes no sense. I mean, they invented chords. They invented like two minute segments. They're like, We have a new way of doing this, all for G. E. No, why? I don't. I didn't need. That. I mean, and uh, he does a great job, but I, and I'll tell you what, like I think that uh, Dave Kilminster just absolutely ro- like he just delivers like those uh, David Gilmore solos. I mean, it, it is spectacular the job that he does. I will also say that there there can be no lonelier place on any stage than on top of the built wall trying to sing David Gilmore's parts to Comfortably Numb because, uh, what's the guy's name, uh, Wyckoff or something like that? Yeah. yeah. I, I think he did a good job of the performance. But, you know, he's not David Gilmore because nobody is. And it's just like, you know, it's such an epic moment of the song. And and as Dave Kilminster does, I mean, he, he, he can pull off David Gilmore. I mean, in, in his own way. I mean, he slays it i mean you you can't you can't duplicate uh gilmore's voice it's gotta be a very lonely lonely place my original thought when i proposed this was you know because again we had built up um in in our mind i feel like you just 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 didn't give 2010 like the proper if if you were having a pink floyd house party and had to choose one of these three shows to have on a DV on the television in the corner, it would be this one. Like this Absolutely. is the one yes. with the gusto. The, All right, get, get, right. Get, okay, right. right because because the sound's going to be down. Everyone's going to be talking. No one's going to be hearing it. But if you want to look at something, <laughs> this is the one you want to look at. Absolutely, hundred percent, hands down. From the opening part when when Roger comes out with the whole getup and the plane and the way they built the wall, because it, it's one of the fascinating things is is the different ways in which they built the wall in on these yes. three shows, you know? And they nailed the little holes and they nailed yeah. the cranes time, the platform. Yes. Everything, yes. everything ab- about the building of the wall. And, and, and that's what I said. I think in 2010 they had, you know, this was the third time around. They knew they, they learned how to, how to stage this properly. And they had the technology to augment it such that it became, to me, visually much more striking. It's just unfortunate that you didn't have the energy of the 1980 band 
coupled with the visuals of the 2010 production. Yeah. How about when the kids come on stage? We didn't talk kids. Oh. That helps, right? No. No. No, it does not help. Ah. Oh, and 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 hearing hearing curmudgeonly Roger Waters go, "Hey, how about those kids?" It's just right, right, right. It it, it it's weird. It's just and. I'm not I'm not bagging on the kids because my understanding is they go to a you know they they go to a city and they they have some sort of a call and they get you know 30 kids who don't know anything they give them 2 hours to learn whatever it is they have to learn and then they literally throw them on stage. So right. so in in terms of that yes those kids deserve tremendous amounts of credit for you know the singing and the dancing and whatever else they do but quite frankly in the midst of this spectacular, high-tech, highly choreographed performance, it sticks out like 30 kids who have had two hours to prepare. Okay. Yeah, they probably didn't get paid anything either. They probably got some food backstage or something. Yeah, that doesn't seem right to me. Um, I agree. I The choreography was kind of cheesy. Um, again, the slight, slight bit of... Uh, High high schoolish. Um, I dug it. Did you? Well, it's 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 funny because I saw that live on the Us and Them tour. Huh. He's when he performs another brick in the wall part two. He still brings out the group of local kids to do that little shtick. Huh. That works. I think I would have liked it better if he didn't feel the need to like walk down on the stage and like walk behind them playing his bass. Pretending Agreed. thing. Yeah. I mean, it's like, dude, you know, just let the kids do their thing. You know, you don't, you just stay where you are. It's not always about you. Yeah. Oh, but it is. <laughs> no, but it is. It is. Um, would, would, would you say this band is austere or a bit unfeeling or stony or maybe frigid? In, 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 in their delivery of the music? I think stayed is the word I would use. It's a little Oh, you always get me on these word <laughs> things. <laughs> it's it's a little stiff, right? And right. I don't know if it's tied to, you know, what Paul was talking about with the uh, with the transposition or anything like that, but it just it it, it doesn't have you know if, if we hadn't if we didn't have the nineteen eighty recording and the vibrancy that that has and all we had to compare was 1990 and 2010, 2010 would probably win hands down without really questioning it. Yeah. But but we know what can happen when you have the the, the special sauce of, of Roger plus David and, and the young man energy and everything else. And quite frankly, this just doesn't have that. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah I think, I think you know, to, to your point earlier, uh, Ken, from, uh, John, is it John Karen that yep. you were reading from? For yep. his points, like when when you dissect a, a a song and you play it, like it's almost like the whole band is, you know, doing a tribute to these songs or trying to play it, you know, and they they didn't really even do that in the 1980 show. Like they they played the songs differently than than that you would have even wanted them to really uh, after listening to the, to the record. I, and I think it just has that. That that sort of feels sometimes it's just kind of like okay yeah that was it that was that was all the notes and I don't want to say it wasn't emotional because I think there are some really great moments and um, 
but I just think sometimes it has that impact too of a of like almost like a uh, almost like a tribute band sort of feel. The one thing you talk about the Wall of Joe with those images, the one thing that really kind of blew me away was when the when the they had the image of like the wall and 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 they would turn the wall all the way around, so it looked like it actually looked like the structure that they had built was spinning around. That was pretty that was pretty mind blowing. I thought that. I wonder what that would have looked like in the in the in the theater or in the. You know it would have looked like lame Miss, dude. <laughs> <laughs> my God! Oh my God! The whole thing just flipped around. <laughs> and, and we've had this conversation obviously before, right? But you know, there there comes a point with certain certain music that it it takes on a life beyond the band that created it. And, and there's, dare I say, there becomes a cultural component of, of the music itself. And so there, there then becomes some value in other performers performing that music in a, in a way that's appropriate. So and we have to always go back to Rick Wakeman called this out, much in the way that there will always be a, you know, a London Symphonic, Symphonic Orchestra you know, there should always be a yes or, you know, and, and I, I don't think he anticipated tribute bands, but I think that is in some ways a practical manifestation of what he was talking about. It's a vehicle to keep the music and in certain cases, such as this, the performance is alive. And, you know, Genesis tribute bands do the same thing. There was, there's a certain, in, in certain segments of the band's history there are performance aspects that become as indelible as the music itself we developed the pavlovian response to some of these images and some of the sounds i mean the, you know the the cash register and money and whatnot so so the in in each incarnation of this or in each tribute of this we're looking for those things that really push our buttons. Right. But I, I do think, you know, these live performances and, and you know, the, the, the tweaks that, that the band and, and Roger have made over the years, you know, as, as wonderful as the Wall album itself was, and as much as we talked about it, I do think these performances, you know, give that, that, that piece some some life it gives it some room to expand and grow a little bit and like i said when you when you bring in some of the imagery from from the movie too and you sort of keep layering these things on top of each other you 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 get you know something that's different it's still essentially the same but it 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 does provide you some different interpretations of it. And I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. I really enjoy it. And, you know, there, honestly, there are times when I have gone to the second disc of the 1990 performance and put that in on purpose. Mm. Um, mm. You know, okay. It, it, I'm not saying it happens often, but it has happened. It's <laughs> charitable of you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and 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 I'm I'll be curious to see you know if I spend more time with the 2010 version if that will eventually grow on me 
um, you know, for the reasons that you described, Ken. I, I don't know, but it's it is good fun. Okay, and, well, and here's the fiber. And, and and again, I I have to give mad props, absolutely mad props to Roger Waters for, you know, pulling off a stage show like this not once but three different times. That's, mm-hmm. I, I mean, and and you know, a. a adjusting it every time i i think it's amazing i I really do to be able to to manifest that sort of vision it's 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 admirable and it's safe to say that roger put the idea of this podcast in your head clearly well like i said like you know it when it became clear to me that this was part of the grand plan that roger came up with it seemed obvious that we had to talk about it and and the original idea really was was to be able to say how absolutely wonderful the 1980s show was and how god-awful the 1990s show was and why did he do it. And then, like I said, in the interim, I became aware of the 2010 show, which really kind of balances the, the, the seesaw a little bit, I think. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. I just, for some reason, I started thinking about the 2013 Marillion show um, of Brave. And... Um, Joe, did I send you those? Did, did you take those? Yeah, I still, I still have those. <laughs> have you watched the Brave um, concert footage? I, I honestly have not, Paul. I really should just send it back to you at this point because you I don't, feel bad. No, no, that's not why I'm saying. I, I'm curious. I, 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 I think you should watch it because I'm curious. Similar to how you know the reaction is to the to the 2010 version of the Wall with the the fiber eating musicians and the and the 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 music the music you know juxtaposed with sort of the ultimate expression of the visual aspect of the show, as you were saying that, and, and we've been talking about it. I've been thinking about that in in the context of the 2013 Brave show, um, and I it'd be interesting for you to watch watch that to see if you have um, you know similar thoughts about that from a musical perspective. Um, cause definitely seeing it live is different than watching it on the DVD live. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and seriously, you don't have, don't send it back to me because I've already watched it. Strangely, I probably won't ever watch it again. So, <laughs> so it, it's, it's funny though, because, and, and again, we, we obviously had that experience and we have rhapsodized about that experience. You have you 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 bought the uh, the the Blu-ray. I actually bought the audio CD, which I believe was recorded in Holland that year, not in Montreal. Right. Um, and to be perfectly honest with you, there are some less than stellar moments, certainly vocally, in yeah. the the audio recording. That at first blush, I was like, oh, this isn't what I remember it to be. But at the same time, and I, I honestly don't know what drove it, but when I was listening to that, and they're literally near the end of that performance, even with some of these flaws that I heard and everything else, I did eventually get caught up in the emotional impact 
mm. of of what we saw in Montreal. And I don't know if it was me remembering Montreal and my body reacting to it, or if in fact it was coming through in that way. So I, I, I don't know, um, you know, what the relationship is between these sorts of things. But you know, I and I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that. For those hundreds of thousands of, I'm going to assume, mostly German citizens who were in Berlin in 1990 and having lived the way they had lived and having experienced, you know, the watershed moment that they had, I'm guessing if you asked them what their memories were of that 1990 performance, it would be as positive and as rhapsodic as ours are of Brave in 2013 Montreal. Just a guess. I bet, right. I bet you'd be right. So, you know, it, as as is often the case with these little exercises on the palaver, I started out thinking I was going to find one thing, and I found some different things along the way. And, and I'm very glad that I did, and I'm glad that we do these sorts of things. And, you know, again, whatever, whatever baggage <laughs> I have with Roger Waters... You know, I, I have to give him credit where credit is due, and he deserves loads of it for these live performances of The Wall. All of them. I found healthy breakfast options. <laughs> oh, spectacular. That's that's uh that's awesome. Well, I mean those are those are pretty much my thoughts on these three performances. I you know, I, I've enjoyed being able to to look at them. I'm curious. I honestly have purposefully gone out of my way to not watch the wall yet because I wanted to sort of get to it in the appropriate order. But it, it is interesting how the visuals from the wall sort of bridge these three and become integrated into it. Um, I know some of you have already watched the wall. Some of you may not watch the wall again before our next episode. <laughs> <laughs> having uh having less than stellar experiences but but that's for next episode so we'll we'll check it out so so joe you mentioned sometimes you, you start going down the path thinking one thing and then you find something totally different let's document what you're thinking now prior to watching the wall um <laughs> what are you thinking <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, and, and I've, I've said this before, I was a latecomer to the wall. I saw the wall much later, I think, than most people of our age. And quite frankly, the first time I saw it, I was like, what's all the fuss about? This is a little weird. I think some of Jerry Scarf's animation is striking in an uncomfortable way. Um, and, and I... I don't know that visually the movie The Wall lands quite as powerfully as the 2010 live performance is the way I'm going to say it. Hmm. Interesting. My God, though, but the movie is so professionally done. Just the sequencing, the quality of the audio. Well, I haven't the... watched it yet. I don't know. I'm just... Paul, ask for my thoughts now. Let me watch it, and we'll discuss right. next episode. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, like I said, when when I understood that Roger always envisioned these three aspects together, I thought it was important to consider them in those aspects, 
you know, separate from each other. So that that's why I set this sort of thing up the way I did, because I think it, I, you know, I, I want to sort of interpret and experience the art in the way that the artist intended. Cool. Did, why don't you do the outro? I didn't hear you do an outro. I didn't do an outro yet. Okay. But I will thank you, gentlemen, for once again following me down this interesting path. And, uh, you know, considering these three shows, I think this was fun. And I very much look forward to finishing out the official segment of Pink Floyd next episode as we cover The Wall, the movie. And then, of course, we will have some of our friends of the Palaver on to provide their perspective on bonus episodes and lessons learned. And that will carry us through to the magic of episode 100. enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You know, which one of these performances do you prefer? Um, what are your thoughts on the guest stars in 1990? We'd love to hear all of this. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at ProgPala or search for Progressive Palaver. You can email us. Our email address is ProgPala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify at some point, Pandora, we hope, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.